Welcome to Immigration Nerds. This podcast is for everyone seeking the details, context, and facts behind the banner headlines on immigration. It's the podcast that gives you the latest on immigration policy and politics and the real world impacts on the people and businesses that make our world turn. If you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by the nerds at Erickson Immigration Group, guiding clients and their employees through the complex immigration system for over 20 years. Hello, immigration nerds. I'm Lauren Clark, senior attorney at Erickson Immigration Group. I am a fellow nerd, an immigrant, and host of this amazing podcast. On every episode, we're joined by the smartest nerds in the know as we cover trends in business, culture, technology, and politics at the intersection of global immigration. Today, we are going to talk about the biggest hot topics for H-1Bs right now, the H-1B cap lottery and the increased demand for selection. Plus, H-1B grace periods will give you the latest immigration news. But first, we start with a roundup of the recent immigration news that we should all be aware of. And we've got just the right nerd for that. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Rob. That's Rob Taylor, partner at Ericsson Immigration Group and our news nerd-in-chief. What's in the immigration news feed today? Yeah, so we have a few new updates for this week. Um, on March 28th, the U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin upheld that the H-4 program for H-1B spouses would continue to remain valid. This is important because H-4 visa holders have the ability to work in the U.S. And ultimately, this court challenge was trying to argue that they should not have work authorization. And so for many H-1B visa holders, uh, the ability for their spouse to work is important for them and their family in the U.S. And this court decision uh, was a great win for folks on the H-1B and the H-4 visas. Great. What else do we have? Yeah. So additionally, there was an update from USCIS uh, that they've revised some policy guidance that there's going to be new gender markers on on updated forms and updated uh, fields in the future. So in addition to being able to check male or female, there'll also be an additional gender marker of unspecified. And so so we'll see how that develops coming up here in the future. Um, Also on the On the global front, we talked recently about COMPASS, which is the new framework for uh, immigration in Singapore. And the Ministry of Manpower, which is in charge of immigration in Singapore, uh, recently released some additional criteria by which individuals can qualify for work visas under this new COMPASS framework. And if you recall, we talked about the fact that this, this new framework is is based on a point system. And so the new criteria that they released talks a little bit more detail about how folks can qualify for additional points and uh, better clarifies who can potentially qualify for a work permit in the future. That was news nerd, Rob Taylor. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Lauren. Now for a conversation about the biggest hot topics for H-1B visa holders. We have seen a sweep of tech sector layoffs that have had a huge impact to visa holders, leaving most in a difficult immigration position. We will also look at the recent H-1B cap lottery and the hurdles for selection for many individuals seeking an H-1B visa. We're joined now by a legal nerd who has practiced law in the private sector, served as a special counsel in the office of the chief counsel at USCIS, and currently serves as director of government relations at the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Shev Dalal Dahini, welcome to the Immigration Nerds podcast. Thank you, Lauren. It's uh, so great to be here and uh, to truly be described as an immigration nerd is an honor. Well, we're very lucky to have you with us today. So from your perch at AILA, 
What's the number one hot topic you see for H-1B visa holders right now? So right now, I think the biggest thing our members are seeing or talking about and are concerned about are the H-1B cap selections and the H-1B lottery. It's just really foremost in mind because this year really has left a lot of people disappointed with the selection results so far in the lottery. And that disappointment is stemming from a lower selection rate for companies, not necessarily overall, but a higher demand means that there is a lower selection rate being felt by many corporations registering their employees. Is that correct? Yes. We've been surveying our members in anecdotally, right? And we're seeing selection rates of about 17 to 20%, some as low as not having any registration selected, others who've had maybe up to 40%, but it's averaging, it seemed to be about 15 to 20% of the total registrations filed. And, you know, what we don't know for sure, because USCIS hasn't released the official data yet, is it looks like there could be anywhere over half a million uh, registrations that were filed, anywhere between 500 to 800,000 are the sort of calculations that people are making right now. And I think it's important to remember that there's only 85,000 H-1B visas available. So of the number of people who registered, USCIS will select above 85,000, but it will not select everybody. So usually in the past, they've selected anywhere around 120, 130,000 registrations. And then those individuals are invited to file petitions. And really, you say yes, particularly since the implementation of electronic registration has trialed and errored how to do those selection rates. We've seen some years with a single lottery, some years with having multiple rounds of the lottery selection. With such a huge number of registrants for that 85,000, do you think we can expect that potentially there will be additional rounds if, for example, 85,000 petitions are not filed to meet that selection? Right. So I think it's hard to know until we know how many registrations were selected. And and I think last year, USCIS released that data around mid-April. So hopefully we'll see that soon. But you know, I'll say what we've seen in the past, right? The first year they ran the, they did implemented the registration system and ran the lottery. They really selected very close to 85,000. So it seemed apparent that not everybody would file. People might have rejections. People might miss the deadline so that there would be second. And in that case, I believe there was like a third round of registration selection. So you know, just to put some perspective for your audience in FY22, they received 308,613 H-1B registrations and had a total selection of 131,970 selections. That happened in three rounds. For FY23, there were 483,000, like almost 484,000 H-1B registrations, and they selected 127,600 registrations. And it was one lottery because that was enough to sort of meet the demand. Like USCIS can't go over, the statute doesn't allow them to go over. So they really, it's a numbers game for them to decide what do they think their percentage of filing will be, what they think the percentage of rejection, potentially denials, right? So they're they're kind of looking at the past years on how their filing season went. And based on that, they're making a projection of how many selections they need to get to that 85,000 cap. 
Right. And I think one of the key things that we're kind of identifying here is that with each financial year that has passed, so the example that you just gave from financial 2022 to 2023, we saw a substantial jump in the number of people being registered for the H-1B cap lottery. Can you point to or kind of evaluate what would be the significant factor in terms of that increase in participation for the H-1B lottery? This is like the biggest question that's on the mind of everybody right now. Like, why was there such a jump? Why do we see such low selection rates? I think, you know, if you put it into perspective, right, if you last year you had 483,000, you know, um, and only 127,000 were selected, you have more than 300,000 registrations that were not selected, right? So what do they have to do? They have to try again, right? It's a lottery, you play it again. So what we've seen is just this exponential increase of people who weren't selected in the past filing again and trying their luck. And people have, you know, we hear individuals talking about, oh, you know, I have a client that, you know, is on OPT or STEM OPT, they're on their second or third round. And that's exactly why, because it's not a one shot and you're out. People are going to keep trying until they get it so that they have a way to remain in the United States. And there are other factors too, like there's that, you didn't get in, you're going to try again. So maybe this is increasing twofold, threefold. And But we're also adding new people into the stream, right? So since the pandemic restrictions have been easing, you've had a lot more individuals going back to going back to university, foreign students coming to the US, Department of State is resuming normal operations, we're no longer in an administration that's restrictive or very restrictive or anti-immigrant. So I think that necessitates that demand will be higher, but it seems unsustainable, right? Like if this demand continues to this effect, obviously the 85,000 is not a sufficient number. And, you know, I will say too, there have been uh, a lot of concerns of potential individuals or companies gaming the system of the H-1B registration because it's so easy now, right? Back before the registration system was in effect, you had to file an entire H-1B petition. You hear about people saying we had truckloads of documents going into the FedEx, right? FedEx truckloads leaving in a five-day filing period. And that was what you had to do. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of expense, both for the employer to take on and work that had to happen ahead of time. So that necessarily limited who could participate. And now the registration system is fairly straightforward. It's a few clicks of a button. It's a $10 fee, at least for now. Um, And so it opens access to the H-1B system to more people to try. So, you know, I think that is also a big driving factor. And I've heard people talking about, you know, there are companies out there who are looking, you know, are, are trying to game the system a little bit by whether it's trying to like get multiple sponsors for one individual to so they have as many shots in the dark because the regulations don't prohibit right now a beneficiary from having more than one employer filing on their behalf. An employer can only file for a beneficiary once, but a beneficiary could have multiple employers file on their behalf. So, you know, that also if one person has three employers filing on their behalf, that also increases the number of people who are going to be in the lottery. 
I agree. I think that that latter trend of certain individuals looking to be registered by multiple companies and then utilizing that selection however they can, whether it's taking that appointment or trying to be considered cap exempt so they can file it with a different employer later on um, is something that I guess we wonder whether or not UCIS will turn their attention to in the future to target um, to try and eliminate the legitimacy of everyone that's being registered so that it is one individual with one registration, with one offer employment, knowing that that offer employment is the only one um, and that it is legitimate offer and that they intend to be employed by that employer. Yeah, I mean, the regs are designed, right? You have to have a bona fide offer of employment. So ultimately, USCIS has to determine whether the job offer, once a petition is filed, is legitimate, right? And if it's not, it will be denied. On the other hand, you got to look at individuals. I, I have a senior um, in high school, and we're just in the final stages of a college application. And you apply to multiple schools, right? You apply to, you know, 10 schools, some people apply to 20 schools to see where they'll get in. It's kind of, again, a lottery, and they're putting their tickets. That doesn't mean that they're, they're not legitimately interested in that school but they're going to see where their best offer is and go there and where do they get in. So putting myself in the shoes of a student who's here on STEM OPT, who's really desperate to remain here to further their experience, right? The education they received in the U.S. and use that to get the practical training they need to make that into a permanent career. They're going to try to use whatever opportunity they have to find that job. Now, could USCIS limit that? Right now, as the regulations exist, they can't. Um, but you know, they are in the process of proposing regulations to modernize the H-1B system, including the registration system. And so maybe there will be some action, you know, to do that. I guess ensure the integrity in the system. One thing that's already in the existing regulations that I think USCIS needs to start looking at more is their ability to investigate and enforce where there may be fraud or there may be an employer who's filing many registrations and is selected, right? They get selected, but then ultimately don't file a petition. And if in that case, you know, if we see that, then then maybe there's some investigation and USCIS in its final rule implementing this did say that they have investigative authority to address those situations. I think to date, they haven't really used that authority, partially because I think the first year that the registration system came into effect, the pandemic hit, right? And everybody's world was turned upside down. So even legitimate employers who were selected couldn't, didn't know what the future held, so didn't file. So I think we're coming out of a cycle. And so maybe now as we're getting into a little bit more normalcy, they will start using that investigative authority to really crack down if there truly is um, fraud in this process. And you touched upon this a little bit earlier, the demand for the H-1B registration, as we've seen, has increased substantially over the years. And one of the maybe key drivers of that is the fact that we are returning to a post-COVID 
work environment, a post-COVID travel flexibility, so across borders, the ability for foreign students to easily come back into the US and undertake studies or come to the US for their studies. Do you think that with that, that trend of we're substantially increasing registration is going to continue and whether or not UCAS may respond to that with an increase of that mandated 85,000 available visas? Yeah, so unfortunately, the 85,000 is not within USCIS's hands, right? So this is a congressionally set number. It's 65,000 visas are allocated every year for regular H-1Bs, so anybody with a bachelor's degree, and then 20,000 additional um, are exempt from that numerical limitation if they've earned their master's degree at a U.S. institution. So that's set. So unless Congress acts to change the numbers, there's really not much we can do. Congress has acted in the past. Um, there was a time where I think the numbers went up like over 100,000 to meet the demand. But right now, um, we've been at 85,000 for quite some time. And clearly, it's not enough. And Congress needs to act to increase that in a way that meets the demand. Obviously, the demand, even if Let's say even if there's a percentage of the registrations that were filed that weren't legitimate, it still surpasses 85,000. And in a time when our economy is is you know rebuilding, but the unemployment levels are so low, and we have legislation that's passed that you know is trying to build the infrastructure and the Chips Act, it's really crucial for workers and corporations to be able to fill those high-skilled jobs. And particularly when there is a cap on the amount of new H-1B visas, I guess a broader question comes up is that, is the U.S. driving away foreign talent simply because of the high you know, threshold to be able to get in and obtain that work authorization in a specialty occupation within the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely we're losing people to Canada, to Europe, to Australia. I mean, I think even maybe even China, like I think it has gotten so difficult to navigate our system and to have a clear pathway for individuals. Even if you are fortunate enough to get the H-1B and then you have an employer that's willing to sponsor you for a green card, for many individuals, particularly those from India or from China, that process is really broken. They could wait 80 years or more to just get that green card. And that's not, who wants to put their lives on hold for that long and have that uncertainty in the process, you know, where other countries are welcoming you and the process is much faster and and smoother. Um, So I feel like Congress really needs to act in this situation to change that, to make our system more able to attract high-skilled workers to fill the jobs that um, need to be filled in the United States. And from time to time, there have been proposals to change that and increase the cap, but it comes at a higher restrictions on H-1B. So, you know, that's going to be something we all have to consider. What What is it that we're willing to take on, right? What restrictions, what wage requirements, things like that, will we be able to have in order to have increased numbers. But many members of Congress have significant concerns about the H-1B program and how it's being used. And so an increase in numbers will very likely increase in a change in the program for you know making it a little bit harder and probably more enforcement involved. 
And I think this is quite topical to talk about kind of the impact of H-1B to employees in the U.S. So they've obtained their H-1B, they're looking long-term to obtaining the green card and how long of a process that can be for certain individuals who are born in certain countries. And one of the most topical parts of that is the grace period that is afforded to H-1B visa holders. So as we kind of indicated at the top of the show, we're in this environment where we've seen substantial tech layoffs that has had kind of a huge impact to non-immigrant visas, particularly those who have a very set grace period. And what that grace period pretty much means is that they have a set amount of days to either find a new employer who's prepared to employ them pursuant to their H-1B status or depart the U.S., ignoring maybe some options for other non-immigrant statuses. Could you talk us a little bit about the facts and policy history around the grace period and how we're now at a 60-day grace period for H-1B visa holders? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So 60 days um, is a new phenomenon. Um, Prior to 2017, if you were terminated from your employment, you were out of status immediately. You didn't have any grace period. And so in uh, 2017, right before the Trump administration took office, a rule was finalized, the AC21 regulation that gave individuals who were terminated or laid off up to 60 days of a grace period meaning either you have up to 60 days or the end of your I-94 period, wherever your status was set to expire, in order to give people a little bit more time and flexibility to find new employment, file a new petition, change their non-immigrant status, whatever the case may be, or even you know wrap up their affairs and go home. Because if you are out of status on day one <laughs> and you have been living in the United States for five, 10 years, you have children who are in school, wrapping up and leaving the next day is impossible. But then there's a clock running for individuals who may be accruing unlawful presence. And so I think the 60 days was was a huge change and a relief for many individuals. But now we're seeing that 60 days may not be enough, right? Because I think when that rule was written, nobody was in thinking mass layoffs, right? That there would be thousands of individuals in the same situation. You know, they were thinking one off here and there, people would have it, give them time. But now there are so many people in the market finding a job makes it a little bit harder. So maybe 60 days isn't enough, but it is much better than what was available just a few years ago. And so in light of that, there has been kind of calls for an increase to the 60 days. um, And there actually was a recommendation for a 180-day grace period that was done by the White House Asian American and Native Hispanic Pacific Islander Advisory Committee. Most individuals are very hopeful for this, but it's a little, I guess, a false hope for those individuals who have been impacted by tech layoffs who are currently either within their 60 days or approaching the end of the 60-day process. Could you talk us through, you know, if we did want to see an increase in that 60 days to 180 days, what kind of time frame and what kind of milestones are we looking for that to go through before it would even be realistic for individuals to benefit from? That's a really important point, because I think when people saw the recommendation, they they were like, oh, we're going to get 180 days. It's going to happen right away. That's just a recommendation, and it's not binding on the White House or even the Department of Homeland Security or USCIS. So I think that's important to know that this is just an idea. This is a recommendation from a commission. 
because as I explained before, this was implemented via regulation. The 60 days was implemented via regulation. In order for them to extend it, most likely it has to be done via regulation. And that would also most likely require notice and comment rulemaking to do so. And that process takes years. Even when you want to move fast, it can take over a year plus because you have to write an entire rule. And even if it's one small change, there's economic analysis and all these different regulatory requirements you have to do. You have to draft the statutory text, then it goes through clearance at you know, the agency, the department, the White House. And then a notice for proposed rulemaking has to be posted for public comment, usually for about 60 days. The comments come in, the agency has to review them, and they have to start the whole process to draft a final rule. And again, that time, it takes at least a year, year and a half to get there. And that's saying, you know, when they're really gung-ho to get it done. So, you know, I don't want to dash people's hopes, but I also think it's really important for people to understand that this is just a recommendation and that there are many, many, many steps for that to be come to fruition if the White House and the Department of Homeland Security even thinks that that's an option. I think, you know, they are trying to push people who are currently experiencing the layoffs to changing their status to another NIV or applying for a compelling circumstances EAD if they're qualified or, or other types of benefits rather than relying solely on the 60-day grace period. Definitely. And that's a, that's a big if, you know, we've seen it in the past when changes have been recommended, that time frame to implementation and application by, you know, UCIS is a very long path. Um, and so I know for many of our own clients kind of explaining that, not to dash their hopes, but to make sure that they are making smart plans now, should they be in a 60 day grace period um, and getting the legal advice that they would need to maintain valid status in the US or depart if that should be the option that they choose. In saying that, it's not all bad news for H-1B visa holders. A topic that we had reported on as, as kind of emerging was that the US intends to resume domestic visa renewals for H-1B visa holders from within the US. Um, knowing, you know, during COVID traveling abroad wasn't an option. And even then when you could, the backlog that U.S. consulates were experiencing were quite long. Um, how much of a relief do we think that this type of proposal or consideration to go back to domestic visa renewals would be for H-1B visa holders? Yeah, so I think that this is really exciting because I, what it would do is give people certainty before they travel, before they leave the United States, that you know, they can come back. So these are individuals who are in status in the United States who have extended their stay in the United States. But if they leave, their visa is expired and they need permission to re-enter the country, even though they are eligible and have been granted status. And this would allow individuals to get all their paperwork done before they leave the country so that when they go, if they go on a business trip or if they go on a vacation, they're not worried about having to set up a appointment at a consulate and, you know, get a new visa, typically might have to travel back to their home country, even if they were just going for a conference in a different country. So I think it would be really game changing. It's something that w was in effect prior to 2001, or it was changed after 9-11. I think it was in effect till 2004, and it was changed after 9-11. But 
the Department of State has committed to resuming stateside visa revalidation. They said that they would start with a pilot program, so start small, and then if it works, expand. In a news article, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Consular Affairs said that it would apply to H-1Bs and L's. But what we are learning now is that it's not going to apply to every H-1B and L because that's a big population. Um, And somehow they will have to limit how many individuals can participate in the pilot program uh, because it's, you know, requires them to have facilities and a full operation here. So they want to start small and then if it's successful, expand it as they go on. They have said that they're hoping to get it started by the uh, end of the fiscal year or the end of the calendar year. So hopefully we'll see some more announcements coming very soon on, you know, who they anticipate will be part of this pilot program and or when it when it will take effect. I think that's kind of a theme with action regarding anything to do with immigration, particularly the H-1B topics that we've talked about today, is that it does take time. Even though these announcements come out, even though there is an intention to make changes or improvement to the program, it does take time for those changes to be enacted. And unfortunately for a lot of individuals that are either impacted by tech who are wanting to travel kind of post-COVID or because their visa stamp has expired, it's not something that's likely to be quickly readily available to them, but does provide some hope for a future, both for obviously either extending their H-1B through a grace period or renewing their visa for both of those implementations to come through. Chev Dalal Dahini, Director of Government Relations at the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Thank you so much for joining us on the Immigration Nerds Podcast. Thank you, Lauren. My pleasure. And thank you to all you nerds out there listening. You can track everything going on at Ericsson Immigration Group at our website, eiglaw.com. And remember, if you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe and share and meet us right back here for another new episode of Immigration Nerds.